Oh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Nice to see you. My name is Rob. Um, I've been coming to this church about three years. Um, if you don't know me, do come and say hello. Because if I get to know you, I'm a little bit shy, so I'm putting the pressure on you, okay? Come and say hello to me. That would be great. It is my privilege um, on this wonderful day, on Easter Sunday, to bring the Word of God to you and to proclaim with confidence that Jesus is alive. And it makes all the difference to living and all the difference to dying. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you that we can read in your word that it declares clearly that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he is triumphant and glorious and seated in heaven. And we thank you that because he is alive, his spirit is here with us today. And because he is alive, we can encounter him. We can know your presence with us today. And we do just pray that, that you would come and touch each one of us in this meeting now. As we open up your word, as we consider the challenge of what it means that Jesus is alive, we just pray, Lord, that you would do some surgery in our hearts today. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at um, some big questions, some objections that people ask of the Christian faith. And so it seemed proper that on Easter Sunday, we should be asking this question. Can I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Can I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you know, back in the 1980s, um, the Bishop of Durham, who was called David Jenkins, made some public statements that he didn't really believe in the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. And he also, by the way, said he wasn't sure about the virgin birth or the second of coming of Jesus either. Uh, and very publicly, he said this, to believe in a Christian way, you don't necessarily have to have a belief that Jesus was born from literally a virgin mother, nor a precise belief that the risen Jesus had a literally physical body. So here's a church leader, right? Someone who is supposed to defend and promote faith, expressing more doubt than faith and doing it very publicly, telling us that modern Christians don't have to believe in a literal risen Jesus. Um, isn't it good for us to be clear about that on Easter Sunday? Um, someone else who's also made public his opinion on whether Jesus rose from the dead is the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. Um, speaking about the resurrection, he said this, It all quite really comes down to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is his problem. He says, It has a fundamental incompatibility with the sophisticated scientist. You see, the thinking person can't believe in a resurrection. And he also said this, talking about the resurrection, he says, it's so petty, it's so trivial, it's so local, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe, he says. And we're going to be looking at the Bible this morning and what the Bible has to say about this. And this is what Richard Dawkins thinks about the Bible. He says, the Bible should be taught, but emphatically not as reality. It's fiction, myth, poetry, anything, he says, but reality. 
As such, it needs to be taught because it underlies so much of our literature and culture. So as far as Dawkins is concerned, you know, it's a good historical book. But we should treat it as a myth or a poem because it doesn't tell us anything true. It doesn't give us any reality. It is not anchored in fact. So, we have a prominent church leader and a prominent atheist both expressing doubts about the reality that Jesus physically rose from the dead. So, so what are we to think? What are we to believe? If you were to meet somebody at work, at college, at school, over coffee, and they were to say these kinds of things to you, what, can you really believe that in the 21st century? What would you say? What would you do? Do you know, thousands of pages have been written over the years, both defending and attacking the idea of a literal resurrection. And there's no way in just a few minutes we have this morning we're going to be able to cover all of this. And so the best way to move forward is to reaffirm that we believe that the biblical story of the story of the resurrection is fact. Amen. You know, I'm a, one of my jobs is that I'm a, a philosophy lecturer But, you know, I'm not here this morning to wow you with clever philosophical arguments. You know, I'm not here to kind of make you believe with some clever philosophical method. What I want to do is take us back to what the Bible says about resurrection. So does the Bible actually address this question? That's worth us thinking. Yes, the Gospels tell us what happened... But does the Bible give us any guidance if we were struggling with it? Does the Bible give us any guidance if we wanted to know, well, how can we be sure it's actually a real historical fact? And the answer to that is yes. And when Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, it seems as if they had some muddled thinking about the resurrection, even though they were believers. And so at the end of that book, in chapter 15, he really addresses the whole issue of, is the resurrection real, and why does it matter? He really addresses that. Um, Chapter 15 is actually the longest letter, uh, the longest chapter of any Paul's letters. And the reason why is because it matters, it's important he had a lot to say. I want you to understand this morning that, that believing in the resurrection is not an optional extra for the Christian. And if you are struggling with this, and you're not a believer here this morning, and you're wondering what to do with the resurrection, I want you to understand from the scriptures that the Bible tells us that this is not a bolt-on. This is not a take-it-or-leave-it doctrine. It's absolutely the heart of authentic Christianity. So let's have a look at what the scriptures said. If you've got a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It will be on the screen behind us. We're going to read the first 26 verses. So the Apostle Paul, writing to this church, says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 
and that after he had appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and did not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised... For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So I have three things that I want to say to you this morning, three truths that are drawn from the Bible. First of all, the Bible says that the resurrection of Jesus is history. Not a myth, not a symbol. History. The second is that the Bible says it's necessary. It's important. It's an essential element of our Christian faith. It's not an add-on. It's not a bolt-on. It's not a pick you like. Thirdly, the Bible says it's a living reality. And if there's anything that we are called to do today on this Easter Sunday, it's to re-engage again with the reality that Jesus is alive and he is here and he is intimate and he wants to meet with us and his power is available for us today. So let's go through these three points. First of all, the Bible says it's history. So Paul starts this chapter by reminding the church of the gospel, the good news that he preached to them. And again, look at verse 3. What does he say? For I received uh, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. So what is the heart of the message about Jesus? What is it that is of first importance that he wants the church to understand? That word there where he says first importance, um, in the Greek it literally means at the forefront. And it's an image that is used to describe horses who are at the front of a chariot. It's kind of like ahead of the rider. It means out at the front. And when Paul is talking to the church, he says to them, look, when it comes to the essential elements of the Christian faith, what is out at the front? What is like a horse pulling the chariot ahead? What is the main thing? And he tells them in verse 3, it is that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. You know, there are scholars who believe that when Paul is stating this here, that he is perhaps quoting from a, a, a saying or, or a hymn or a creed, a, a statement that was doing the rounds in the churches. Um, Paul probably wrote this letter about, uh, about 20 years after the events of the cross. Uh, and this was before the Gospels were written. So when the church received this, they would not have had the Gospel accounts. And yet, even in just those few years... It seems as if already there is in circulation a, a creed, a, a statement, maybe even a, a hymn that says, look, this is at the forefront. This is the main thing, that Jesus did die, he was buried, and that he did raise and rise from the dead. And these verses, I think, are really important because they do help us to, to give answers to some of the objections that people make of the resurrection. That's what we're considering. That's what this series is, is all about. Um, how are you going to answer these objections? What do you say when people say, come on, can you really believe that this literally happened? Well, let's have a look at what some of these objections are. Maybe you've come across these. Maybe you've had people say these to you. First of all, you know, some people say that the resurrection was a later belief. It's the idea that maybe the church added this to their faith because at some point, maybe many, many years later, that they realized that the message that they were preaching, it didn't add up, the loose ends didn't fit. And so maybe, like a storyteller, the argument is that the Christians realized that the plot line didn't make sense and so they needed to edit and amend the story and the way that they did this was by adding in the resurrection. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in relation to movies. Sometimes people who are very good at spotting these kinds of things say that, that in some of the, the major movies that we've all seen, that, that there are plot holes. There are things in the story that don't make sense, and it makes the whole story fall to pieces. Um, let me just give you one classic example. I'm sure you've all seen the disaster movie Titanic, well, one of the, the people who have looked at these plot holes has said that the holes in the script are bigger than the hole that sunk the ship. So um, let me give you an example. Um, if you've seen the film Titanic, um, it, it's a tragic love story, isn't it? And what happens is the ship sinks, they're, they're both in the water, and tragically Jack dies and Rose is saved because she's floating on this piece of wood. Hmm, this piece of wood. I mean, have a look at the piece of wood. Um, why didn't she move over? Why didn't she sit up? 
Um, th- there is definitely room for two. If you show the next slide, I mean, th- <laughs> there are some people who've checked this out scientifically. And, and there are lots of ways in which both Rose and Jack could have got onto that piece of wood. And, and, and maybe if the director had realized the error, all they could have done is they could have reshot the scene, they could have got a smaller piece of wood, and that would have ironed out the awkward details of the fact there's no reason why he had to die at all. You see, some people say that is what Christians did with the resurrection that they realized the story didn't make sense without it, and so they added it to the story later. But don't you see, from these verses, we know that that cannot be the case, because just 20 years after the event, Paul is telling us this is at the forefront. This is something of first importance. It was not added later. That argument just does not stand. Some people say the disciples experienced a mass hallucination, Now, that might be plausible if the resurrection story was based on one person having one single experience. But when we look at what Paul says in Corinthians, he clearly tells us that Jesus appeared to many different people at many different times in many different situations. And also, if we read the gospel accounts, we read that they touched him and and they talked with him and they even ate fish with him. He had a real material body. This wasn't a hallucination. They weren't having some sort of hysterical moment. So what we know about the resurrection does not fit the idea of a hallucination. It doesn't fit the evidence. Some people say, and this is a very popular one, that Jesus didn't actually die when he was crucified. He was just unconscious And they thought he was dead, and they put him in the tomb. And in the cold of the tomb, he arose from his unconsciousness, and the disciples jumped to the wrong conclusion. Yet Paul tells us in these verses very clearly that Jesus died, and he was buried. I mean, I could give you some gruesome details about how awful uh, crucifixion was, but I really don't think I need to do that. The Romans created crucifixion and the Greeks used crucifixion because it was not something that anybody ever walked away from. That was the point. And yet also when we read the Gospels, John gives us a detail that may have not been so significant to him, but we now know that this tells us very clearly that Jesus died. In John 19, where John is describing the the death and crucifixion of Jesus, it says this, But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Medics tell us that what happened here was that the sack that surrounds the heart was burst, and it indicates that Jesus died of heart failure. Jesus suffered heart failure, and he really, really died died. And, and if as Christians, you know, we're being asked to, to, uh, to prove the intellectual credibility of our claims, I, I would say this to the skeptic. Can we really be expected to believe that a tortured and crucified man, bloody, dehydrated, 
moved a massive stone, walked 70 miles to Galilee, and was able to hide his wounds to such an extent that he could convince a group of people that he had a glorified body. I mean, is that really what we are being asked to believe? That takes more faith. Do you know, some people say the resurrection is just a symbol. It's like he rose in their hearts. He didn't rise from a literal tomb. He rose in their hearts. And again, we can't believe that because Paul addresses this objection. If he just rose in their hearts, if it's just this inner subjective feeling... Why does he go to the trouble to tell us about real historical people, real historical details? Why does he tell us that the resurrection is rooted in times and places and history? Why does he need to do that? It's because it's not just in their hearts. It's not just in their heads. It was a real historical fact. So Paul's first line of defense for the resurrection is to appeal to early creeds, to early eyewitnesses, and to say to us confidently, even though it's a unique miracle, it is a historical fact. Secondly, the Bible tells us that it is necessary. Um, It matters. It matters as a truth claim. It matters doctrinally. Again, listen to these verses that Paul said, and, and You know, they're so stark, they're so shocking, they're so black and white that you almost have to read them again to make sure that that is what he is saying. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. Useless, he says. And the word in the Greek literally means empty. It means your claim is as hollow and empty as a bucket. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And the word futile literally means fruitless. If all we have is a dead Savior, then our faith is as dead as a fruitless tree. That is what he is saying. To speak very plainly, what Paul is saying to us is this. If Jesus is still dead, those of you who are Christians here today... You are wasting your time. If Jesus is not alive, the Christian faith is an absolute waste of time. It achieves nothing. It's empty. It's pointless. To such an extent that at the end of that chapter, he says, so we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it's such a strong statement Because Paul wants us to understand that that Jesus dying on the cross and being raised to life, it's part of a, a coherent system. The God who planned this is a God of beauty and a God of order. It's not an add on, it's not something that you can take or leave. It's an integral part of the Christian faith. For those of you who are believers here today, The resurrection is so important for you to understand that that death has no ultimate power over you. That that all the pains and the aches of your physical body, that they will one day be over. That the ticking hands of time that make you feel older and frailer and tireder will one day have no tyranny over you because Jesus is alive. Paul says Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
So his resurrection to life is the guarantee that we will be raised to life if we believe in him. And if you are not a believer here this morning and, and you sense that reality of your mortal lives, if you feel the fear of death, Jesus' resurrection is a promise that death is not the end. It's also a, a revelation of the power of God. Paul says in these verses, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I mean, the, the tyranny of death is so certain, so inevitable, so undeniable. And yet Jesus has conquered it. The finality of death is defeated by the power of God. Do you know, when Paul was writing to the Ephesians, he said to them, that power that's at work at you, in you, that power is the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Paul writes to this church, this struggling church, that we're living in the shadow of this huge, beautiful temple of Diana that was in Ephesus. Have a look at this picture. This gives you a sense of, of what it would have been like to live in Ephesus. You know, this huge temple. It, it's grand. It's glorious. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was teeming with life and people and activity and enthusiasm and religious zeal. And then there's this little Christian community. And don't they feel pretty pathetic by comparison? You know, how can we compete with that? And Paul says to them, the power that is at work in you is the glorious power that raised him from the dead. Reflect on that and hold your confidence, church. Paul told the Romans that it was the resurrection that guaranteed that we are justified. That means declared righteous before God. The way that we can know that we have peace with God and that God is our friend is because Jesus has raised from the dead. The resurrection is the stamp of approval on all that Jesus was, all that he said, all that he did. All that he did. It's the vindication of who he is. And so when people say, yeah, but the resurrection defies the laws of gravity. It defies the laws of nature. Nobody comes back alive. Our response to that is, yes, exactly. Because when we say that Jesus was risen from the dead, we are saying that this is someone who is earth-shatteringly unique. That this is something which demands our attention. It's not something that you can take or leave. It's God's stamp of approval that his work was complete. You know, someone was telling me the other day that, um, that when carpenters finished the work, that they would fold a cloth and they would put it on the item that they had made. And the folded cloth was an indication that the work was finished. And when the tomb was empty, the grave clothes were folded in the tomb because the work was finished. The work was complete. That is our confidence today. So what do we do with this? Let's get a bit practical this truth is our birthright as adopted children of God. But don't you sometimes feel, I sometimes feel that, that I don't always live in the reality and the victory of this truth. Don't you sometimes feel that you, you fail, you repent, you make new promises, 
You, you fail again, you repent, you make new promises. And it seems like we come to God again and again and again with, with the same weaknesses, the same issues. And, and yes, we connect with the cross. We understand that there is forgiveness at the cross. But where is the transforming power of resurrection life? And Paul tells us, thirdly, it's a living reality. You know, the Christian life is not like an immunization jab, like one dose and you're done. It's about connection. It's about intimacy. The message of Jesus is not just get a ticket to heaven. It's that you can know God and that you can walk in his strength. Do you remember when Jesus told the disciples in the upper room just the night before he was betrayed? I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, says Jesus. You need my life. You need my strength. Just like a branch has no life in it unless it is connected to the vine. We have to be connected to Jesus. Do you sometimes feel weak? Do you sometimes feel that life's issues and troubles and trials weigh you down? As I've been preparing this sermon, I've, I've just been particularly aware of my own weaknesses and failings. And, you know, I have really feel that as, as I've done that, that God has impressed upon me that, yes, that is how it is. That is how it is. That is the reality of my life lived in my own strength. And God will sometimes use the trials and the difficulties of life to burst the bubble of self-sufficiency. To burst the bubble that says, I can do it on my own. That I can live the life that that God calls me to live in my own strength by trying harder and doing better and making new resolutions, being religious. And you know, that's not what the message of the Bible is. What do we have to do? I think we have to do what Jesus did. Before he could ever be resurrected, he had to die. Crucifixion and death always comes before resurrection life. The Lord Jesus had to surrender his life totally and completely to the purposes of God before there could ever be a resurrection. And you know, Paul sees this and he grasps it as the key principle of the Christian life, that we have to crucify the will, we have to crucify the self, we have to die to ourselves, we have to surrender before resurrection life can ever come into our lives. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And when he was writing to the Philippians, he said this, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So here's Paul. He, he, he was this religious Pharisee. And he says, you know what? I've found the secret. I've realized that what I have to do is throw all that stuff off. He says it's garbage. That's really quite a polite way of describing what he's talking about. Some messages say it's like dung. And I think even that is a bit polite. Okay? I hope you get the message of what he's saying. All that other stuff, it's rubbish. And the Christian life involves us basically doing this. We throw in the towel. We give up on the try-harder DIY religion. 
we throw off the lie of self-sufficiency that says, I can live this life in my own power. Jesus submitted to death and was raised to life. And Paul says, that's how we get empowered. That's how we get it. He says, yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, this message is not just a head thing. It's not just about having facts that the resurrection really happened. What's integral to this is that we need to reaffirm on Easter Sunday that we have to have a living encounter with the risen Jesus. We have to give up being in charge. And do you notice Paul says it's a continuous thing. He says it's pressing on. It's not, a, it's not a moment thing. It's not a come and stand at the front thing. This is a, a life thing. It's about every day. In a few moments, we're going to take communion, and um, Colin's going to lead us in some response. You know, the challenge is, is not now. The challenge is not what are you going to do now. The challenge is tomorrow and, and next week and next year. The challenge is how do we abide in the busyness of life? The challenge is you young people, with, with maybe with exams and homework and pressures of life, how are you guys going to abide in Jesus in the pressure of life and exams and revision? How are you guys going to abide in the pressure of work and family and home and responsibilities? Do you know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said to them, you know, not many of you are of noble birth. You know, they were slaves. They were farmers. They, they were agricultural workers. And they probably had less free time than we do. And yet, in the midst of the busyness of life, they communed and they walked with Jesus. In the midst of the, busyness, uh, in, in the, midst of the busyness of life, they intentionally clicked into the power of Jesus by realizing they had no strength in themselves. Do you know, I think the reason why so many people find the resurrection objectionable is not because it breaks the laws of nature, but because it demands a radical response. It demands that we give up and we die to ourselves. It demands that we give over control and we admit that we are weak. It's not a head issue, it's a heart issue. And Colin's going to come now and, and just lead us. But let me just ask you this. Are you ready today to surrender in a new way and to connect in to the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ? Before we can know resurrection power, we have to die to self. Colin, I'll leave it to you.